0: Everybody time to finish up their conversations here. Do you have your Bibles with you Uh, while everybody's getting situated here? You can open up to um, keep a finger in three places. We're going to start in Leviticus, okay? Uh, Leviticus 19 is where we're going to start. And then we're going to end up in Proverbs, and then at the very end, we'll end up back in Genesis. So just to give you an idea of where we're going, um, but we're going to start in Leviticus 19 today. Let me pray for us real quick before we get started, and then we'll, we'll just kind of hop into the lesson here. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come together. Thank you for this time uh, to study your Word. Thank you for caring for us um, In the way that you do, Lord, thank you for forgiving us our sins as we express faith in you. Thank you for that sacrifice on our behalf. God, I pray that we would look at your word today, that we we would be well taught by it, Lord. um, That we would understand what it means um, to look at things in the way that you look at them when it comes to social justice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Leviticus uh, 19, verses 35 and 36. Last week, um, we covered in Chapter 7 the disparity question. This week, we are covering the color question. So we're going to deal with issues of black and white, Uh, skin tone, as it were, Um, whatever you want to assign to that, brown skin, black skin, white skin, yellow skin. It covers all of those questions ultimately, but specifically because we're in America and this was written by an American, we're going to cover... Uh, the questions around black and white. I'm going to try to give some context here. There's no way that I can do justice to this particular question in 50 minutes. Uh, There's way too much history. There's way too much way too many different historical threads that weave in and out of this and laws that uh, were once on the books that are no longer um, obviously slavery Then the system of peonage, which lasted in the South, which was another form of slavery that lasted up until the 1940s. Um, There's lots of things that we could cover. So I'm going to try to just distill it down to a little bit of what we're dealing with today as best I can. Okay, So Leviticus 19. Last week, you'll remember, we, we started out by reading... Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 through 9. Does anybody remember what Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 through 9 were covering? What, what was the main point that we talked about last week? You can sum it up in one word from that passage. It began with a P. Partiality. Partiality that's right. And the word taught us that we are not to show partiality based on things that grab our emotions. So when we see a poor person and a rich person, even if the poor person grabs our emotions by their appearance, by their lack of physical things, by their possessions, we do not show partiality to them immediately, right? We judge the case based on facts and based on God's truth. This week is kind of a continuation of that question. Um, what I want to start with, with reading 35 through uh, 36 here in Leviticus 19. Why I want to do that, we'll see here in just a second. You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, and honest ephah, or epha, I forget how you pronounce that. An honest hen I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt Proverbs chapter 16 verse 11 says honest weights and scales are the Lord's all the weights in the bag are his work all the weights in the bag are his work honest weights and scales are from the Lord the first one this is Proverbs 18 17 the first one, which I'm glad he included this in this chapter, I was going to anyway. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. So those three verses taken together, and in light of what we talked about last week, what do you think these three verses have in common? What do you think these three verses have in common? Or three sections, I should say, because one of them has two verses. Leviticus nineteen, thirty-five and thirty-six. You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, and then who do those come from? Proverbs sixteen eleven says, Honest weights and scales are the Lord's. All the weights are in his bag. And then the Proverbs eighteen seventeen again says the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. What do those have in common? It's something we've talked about quite a few times here. The third is an application of the first two. I'll give you that hint. The third is an application of the first two. What are the first two telling us to look at? Are they giving us something to measure by? In order to have an accurate measurement, what do you have to have? a standard that's exactly right we've talked about that regularly right in this in this conversation so this becomes especially important especially relevant it's always relevant it's always important this becomes especially relevant and especially important and all the more emphasis should be taken and the time taken to spend time thinking about what exactly the standard is when you come to a topic like um, black versus white when you come to a topic that is as heated has so much historical baggage you have to have a correct standard in order to deal with this you measure according to what god has provided you to measure with i've had some of you ask me questions about how do you apply this to people who feel differently than you people who actually come from the opposing worldview that we continue to talk about you handle it by pointing them to the standard and calling them to repentance and faith in jesus christ in the same way we were called to repentance and faith in jesus christ so you have to ask yourself here in these particular questions what is the standard of truth now the application that third verse there this the reason that i chose this one and i had it on my list last week and we didn't read it the reason that i i saved it for today or thought about putting it in here today is because our media our media is never going to present you with both sides of this issue you cannot trust fox news cnn msnbc any of them okay any of them to promote True, accurate information. Okay? All of us come with a bias. There is no neutrality. But our bias has to be the word of God. Remember the, les- the-, the lenses that we are supposed to put on. If you think Fox News is trustworthy, just look at who they hired this week. Bruce Jenner, supposed Caitlyn Jenner. Okay? And they're promoting the man as a woman on their network to contribute. That's conservatism today. Biblical conservatism is different than that, okay? None of them are completely trustworthy. Trustworthy. That is not to say that all of them are completely and inherently evil down to the core and can present no bit of truth. It is to say you have to wade through all of that mess with and by the word of God, okay? So let's get, I just want to throw that out in front here, just so you understand where I'm coming from with this. Okay, any questions so far? So the first one pleads his cause. The first one who pleads his cause seems right. Think of this about everything you think about this with everything you have experienced in terms of the media in the last several years. Everyone who is the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. This is the job of every Christian before we pass judgment on situations. This is the standard that God calls us to. All right, page. Starting on page 93, shots fired. He starts out with uh, a mention of Black Lives Matter. And we're going to include some of their, um, which has been removed from their website. I'll explain that in a little bit. But we're going to include some of what we believe from their page. Okay, It's, it's essentially like as an organization, they have a section on there called what we believe. And up till September 2020, when they started to receive a significant amount of feedback negatively, about the things that they had on there it read a particular way and luckily the internet never loses anything and so I have the archived webpage and I read it then so I know it was there. So we're going to cover that and plus it's still what they teach and I'll I'll explain that again later. Anyway I'm getting sidetracked here. We have a lot to read. I'm actually going to read a huge section and I want you to follow along with me and I'm just going to make a couple comments as we go. Um, Shots fired. The color question. Page 93 says, in January 2015, a police officer remarked to his partner about the little effer of the sort who go steal cars, they go break into stuff. Minutes later, the officers fired 24 rounds at a young man in a stolen Ford Explorer. He suffered a fatal AR-15 rifle shot to the back of the head. An internal review board found the officers innocent of breaking departmental policy. I'm not entirely sure which case he's talking about, but remember that Proverbs 18:17. Okay? Remember Proverbs 18:17. A year later, a young man on his knees pleaded, "Please don't shoot me." Following orders to crawl toward police officers, the young man reached for his waistband and was instantly shot dead. No gun was found on him, only an air rifle in his hotel room. The jury acquitted the officers. Six months later an unarmed teenager reached for his waistband after repeated warnings from officers. He reached and was shot four times. The police chief ruled the shooting justified and the county district attorney refused to file charges against the officers. Have you heard of Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and Alton, or Alton Sterling? It's likely. The tragic stories of these three black image bearers of God are chillingly similar to the three fatalities above. Have you heard of Lauren Simpson, Daniel Shaver, or, or Ann Noble? Probably not. But these three were white men who each met their fatal demise to police gunfire as described before. They were three of the 25, or 2,352 white men fatally shot by police officers from January 2015 to July 2020. Okay, I'm going to stop there for a second. How many of you, this is just some legal knowledge that you will benefit you as you start to think through these particular cases. What's, what did all six of these things have in common here? Except for Trayvon Martin police shootings okay police shootings that's their commonality why is it or or have any of you ever heard of the term that police officers are not typically prosecuted for shootings he doesn't include this but this is really pertinent information in my opinion anyway Now, have any of you heard of the term that allows policemen not to be prosecuted, generally speaking, for shootings? Have you ever heard the term? It's called qualified immunity. The term is called qualified immunity. So this is a definition from a legal website uh, at Cornell University, okay? Qualified immunity is a type of legal immunity. It, it, qualified immunity balances two important interests, the need to hold public officials accountable when they exercise power irresponsibly, and the need to shield officials from harassment, distraction, and liability when they perform their duties reasonably. Specifically, Qualified Immunity protects a government official from lawsuits alleging that the official violated a plaintiff's rights, only allowing suits, this is important, where officials violated a, quote, clearly established statutory or constitutional right. Okay. When determining whether or not a right was, quote, clearly established, courts consider whether a hypothetical, reasonable official would have known that the defendant's conduct violated the plaintiff's rights. So if another official or police officer was placed in that particular situation, would they have known that their fellow police officer OK, and a judge can decide this as well? This is just I'm using this as an example and judges typically are the ones who decide this. Um, they would they see in those shootings, okay that we listed, that the police officer violated a constitutional right of the people that we just read about? If they can't find that, quote-unquote, reasonable or clearly established principle, then charges are not filed. Now, the difference comes between, that doesn't mean that police can't be prosecuted, because they are. Okay? The difference comes typically between, quote-unquote, split-second decisions and intent. And intent's a lot harder to prove. Does that make sense? So a lot of this revolves around qualified immunity and how it's been abused, okay? But, it, but the fact that it's also somewhat necessary. Could you imagine every person that the police interacted with filing a lawsuit against them civilly or criminally because they said they were mistreated even if they are a lifelong criminal who legitimately was committing a crime? Maybe it's domestic violence. So qualified immunity is both necessary and needs to be carefully applied, okay? So this will give you some context if you've ever wondered why, which I think is helpful to these things. If you've ever wondered why these things sometimes are prosecuted and sometimes are not prosecuted. So it says, courts, I'm going to read just a couple more sentences and then we'll move on. Courts conducting this analysis apply the law that was enforced at the time of the alleged violation, not the law in effect when the court considers the case. Qualified immunity is not immunity from having to pay money damages, but rather immunity from having to go through the costs of a trial at all. Accordingly, courts must resolve qualified immunity issues as early in a case as possible, preferably before discovery. Okay, so this applies widely. This applies to, uh, um, to officials of, of many different kinds. Okay, so qualified immunity is necessary, but it has been abused significantly. Okay, remember, the first one who pleads their case is right until another man come, comes and examines him. We have to have equal weights and measures before we can decide what is or is not true about a particular case. So when you see something on media, be careful of your gut reaction and compare it to what the Word of God actually says. This is my, let's get out in front of this train, this emotional train that is dealing with black and white issues before we get to the points where we talk about some specifics. Does this make sense? I want you all to understand that. Um, I'm not a legal expert, so could I give you every single detail? No, I just know that this is an issue, and this is one of the issues that came up, after, especially after George Floyd, okay? <clears throat> you can go back and read about the Supreme Court case and, how, and the development over history if you would like. Most people aren't as nerdy as I am about that sort of thing. So, All right, any questions so far? Okay. In Time Magazine, we're going to continue in the same spot. In Time Magazine, Columbia University professor John McWhorter observes, we operate according to a meme under which cops casually kill black men under circumstances in which white men are apparently let off with a hand slap. The meme is quite understandable given the existence of racism in America. You hear the assumptions there? There's no evidence offered. It's... a Flat statement. McWhorter identifies as neither Republican nor conservative and rejects right wing dismissals of Black Lives Matter. After weighing the evidence, he concludes that meme is vastly oversimplified. There is a Daniel Shaver for John Crawford and a Michael Parker for Walter Scott, a James Scott for Laquan McDonald. Our conversation must be based on facts. I agree there. What are the facts? Here are some details according to the Washington Post database. And If you don't know what the Washington Post is, it's a very liberal newspaper. Okay, It's a very far-left-leaning newspaper, very far-left-leaning newspaper. Between 2016 and 2019, 3,939 image-bearers of God were fatally shot by image-bearing police officers, averaging just under 1,000 deaths per year. Of those deaths, roughly half of those victims were white and a quarter were black. Of those deaths, about 4% involved the shooting of an unarmed victim. These are facts. These are not made up. Okay, Averaging 25 unarmed whites and 18 unarmed blacks per year. Of those unarmed victims, an average of 16 whites and 8 blacks per year were not fleeing the scene. Of those 24 unarmed victims per year who were not fleeing the scene, 16, white, and 8, black, nearly all of them involve victims physically attacking police officers, usually under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Every man's case seems right until another person comes and examines him. Okay? Yes, we might think, the likelihood of being gunned down by police is relatively low, and yes, nearly twice as many whites as blacks are shot by cops each year, but whites are a whopping 62% of the American population, and blacks are around 13%. The fact that 13% of the population accounts for nearly one quarter of police shooting victims proves that there is widespread racial injustice in our police system. Seems right until you examine it. This conclusion, however, leaves out a factor that should matter to us if we care more about pinpointing real racism than clinging to our popular political narratives. That factor is simply this. If police are doing their jobs, then we should expect to find greater force where there are higher rates of violent crime. A cop who discharges his weapon equally, whether he finds himself in office buildings fighting fraud or in back alleys, encountering armed criminals would not be a good cop. Whether criminals use computers, cell phones, and secret bank accounts, or whether they use guns, knives, and fists will make a difference, and should make a difference, in how often you officers reach for their holsters. This is not saying that one type of crime is worse than one another. It is simply saying that violent crime is more likely to be met with violent force than nonviolent crime. And what do you find whenever you look at communities? The largest amount of violent crime is typically in inner-city African-American neighborhoods. That can account for that sort of thing. He goes on to put in some statistics, but what I want you to flip over or look at is page 95 the second full paragraph down, he says, Why do such facts matter? Because black lives matter. Each and every black life should matter to Christians because it is the beautiful, irreplaceable, creative handiwork of God. The more politicians and activists with great intentions, I don't think their intentions are good at all, push the false narrative of widespread racist police shootings, the more police forces around the nation will withdraw from neighborhoods ravaged by violent crime. Yes, the politicians and activists may feel warm, inner glow of doing their part to fight racism, but ideas have consequences, and false ideas have bad and even fatal consequences for real people. You can outrun an ideology... By ignoring it but you can't outrun facts forever it'll catch up with you so this is the consequences of these sorts of decisions flip over another page here any questions so far notice it's 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 racist for him to just say that in our modern parlance, to even, for me to read this out loud makes me a huge proponent of of white supremacy. I could not walk into a university and say this in a classroom to a sociological professor, generally speaking, okay, not every one of them, but generally speaking, without receiving pushback that this is contributing to and promoting white supremacy, okay? affects everything i mean violence in a neighborhood uh keith just mentioned that he worked in the inner city in chicago for a period of time at some housing projects and because of the nature of the violence in the neighborhood it took an ambulance you say two hours almost Um, i'm sorry almost an hour to go two miles uh to go two miles in order to go and aid a grandmother who was having a heart attack she died from it okay so that's tragic right and it and it's we're going to head toward that more and more. You know, we're going to head toward that more and more. I mean, look at what happened in Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis. They quote unquote defunded the police after George Floyd. Now, again, I'm not promoting police behavior as sacrosanct and and holy and pure all the time. I'm not, not even close. (laughs) There are bad cops just like any other profession and they have so much power, when they are bad, it's very bad because they bear the sword, right? They bear the sword on behalf of the government. So when they are not fulfilling their responsibilities properly, it's worse than typical. Okay. Page 97. First, according to, this top of page 97, he's going to, outline some things here that kind of explain some possible problems in the African American community. First, according to 2018 data from the Census Bu- U.S. Census Bureau, Bureau, whites rank 16th on the scale of median household income by selected ancestry groups. How can we reconcile the Social Justice B narrative that America remains systemically white supremacist to its core when Indians, Taiwanese, Lebanese, Turkish, Chinese, Iranian, Japanese, Pakistani, Filipino, Indonesian, Syrian, Korean, Ghanaian, Nigerian, and Guyanese earn more income on average than whites do in the United States. The first one to plead his call seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. <clears throat> Second, homes with a married mother or father and father correspond with higher levels of academic and career success. It's almost like the Lord blesses those things which he's commanded. Okay. Correspond with higher levels of academic and career success for their children, as well as lower rates of criminality and mental disorder. The rate of black children born out of wedlock has jumped from 24% in 1965 to nearly 70% in 2016. This correlation fits exactly with the creation of Medicare and Medicaid. When you wed yourself to the state, you don't need a father in the home. Okay. This tragedy has occurred well after slavery and segregation were dismantled. And if you actually look in black history, there was a great uh, increase in black wealth up until the 60s. They were beginning to recover from the slavery and things. It's called Black Wall Street. you should Look it up. Yes. Well, let's read the rest of the paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> let's read the rest of the paragraph. The difference is staggering, though, in terms of uh, degree, so, so we have to make a, a, a distinction in terms of degree in that regard. This tragedy has occurred well after slavery and segregation were d- dismantled, after the abolitionist and civil rights movement claimed their greater victories. Lest we think this family breakdown is a uniquely black problem, the rate of white children born out of wedlock over the same 50 years has skyrocketed from 4 to 28%. The steep spikes are devastating for black and white Americans alike. Nevertheless, a black child today is 2.5 times more likely than a white child to be born out of wedlock. Are we to believe this heartbreaking reality has nothing to do with many of the sad disparities we see today? So if you took the the interesting thing in reference to your question is if you took a, a snapshot of Appalachia demographically, it's roughly identical to African American community. In terms of out, of out of wedlock, it's still less, but in terms of out of wedlock, socioeconomic outcomes, and lack of education. It just doesn't sell as well in the media. No it doesn't sell as well in the media, so no one talks about it. That's 100% right. 100% right. So, page 98. So, where does this come from? This comes from white liberals. This comes from white liberals. You should read, if you want to read an interesting book by black economist Thomas Sowell, who grew up in Harlem, graduated from Stanford University, read his book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Read his book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. It's worth your time. Indeed, it is possible that what we often consider the black voice is actually the white liberal voice. Consider a recent example. The Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture opened an outline portal, an online portal, I'm sorry, entitled Talking About Race to Help Inspire Productive Conversation About Race. Providing starting points for the conversation, the Smithsonian offers readers a crash course in three basic terms, whiteness, white privilege, and white fragility. We may escape the reader. It, what may escape the reader who simply seeks out a more empathetic understanding of Black perspectives is that all three of these concepts were crafted and popularized by liberal white women: whiteness from Judith Katz, Judith Katz, white privilege from Peggy McIntosh, and white fragility from Robin DiAngelo. Likewise, most conversations about race, including those within the church, begin by stipulating that racism does not mean discriminating against people on the basis of their race, but prejudice quote plus power, a redefinition invented by a white sociologist named Patricia Badol Padva. concepts like whiteness, white privilege, white fragility and the new definition of racism have cornered the market in education, diversity training and the lion's share of recent christian le- christian literature on race. But we must be careful not to confuse preaching such concepts with standing up for minority voices. Why? We're going to hit on that. Okay? They don't promote black welfare, they promote the destruction of black community because that's all they can do. Okay, That's all they can do. They are often not the same thing citing any litany of recent sociological studies. I'm not going to read that part. Flip over um, one more page here to Whiteness is Wicked at the top, page 101. About halfway down. So this is where it crosses from cultural stuff and we're like, okay, I can see that these people promote it, they're on CNN, they hate God, it's obvious. Then it moves into the church. And this is where it moves into the church. This lady who who we're going to read the quote from here uh, was a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary, considered to be one of the most conservative seminaries in America. Uh, They're loosely affiliated with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church denomination, loosely. It's not truly a denominational seminary, but... In March 2019, Echamini Uwan addressed the Sparrow Conference for Women in Dallas, Texas. The ad for the conference read, The world needs peacemakers because conflict is everywhere, in relationships, on social media, at work. So follow God's call and join an amazing community of peacemakers, peacemaking women, at the 2019 Sparrow Conference. At this com- conference, to inspire peacemakers, Uwan, who brands herself an anti-racist public theologian, You can visit our website if you want to look that up. Had this to say. When we talk about white identity, then we have to talk about what whiteness is. Well, the reality is that whiteness is rooted in plunder, in theft, in slavery, in enslavement of Africans, genocide of Native Americans, its power structure. Notice the Marxist language. We've talked about all this so far. Okay, its power structure. That is what what I'm sorry. It's a power structure. That is what whiteness is. Because we have to understand something. Whiteness is wicked. It's rooted in violence. It's rooted in theft. It's rooted in plunder. It's rooted in power in privilege. Now, the next two paragraphs in this page, I really don't understand. They might be the most poorly worded paragraphs in the entire book. Because he refuses, for whatever reason, maybe it was intentional, maybe it was not, I have no idea, to call this itself wicked and sinful. Instead, he uses loose terms like offensive. Okay? that's not, this is, let me just read him. To grasp Uwan's perspective, a perspective she developed from critical theorists, it is important to note that whiteness does not always mean having white skin. Yes, it does. It absolutely does. It's purposeful choosing of language. That is not true. I understand what he's trying to say, but it is really poorly worded. She calls on people of color to divest from whiteness too. Yes, but what do they call those people? Oreos. Yeah? Black on the outside, white on the inside. Heard that pejorative thrown around a lot. Okay? whiteness is not a skin tone so much as it is a plundering, thieving, enslaving, genocidal way of being in the world. Surely, if we use whiteness to mean the devastating idea crafted by sinners that paler skin justifies treating darker skinned people like anything less than divine image bearers, then yes, that is an evil idea. No, it's an evil idea, period. He would not be comfortable with saying the same thing and extending the same olive branch to someone who was saying that using the term blackness or yellowness, or redness, or any other skin tone you want to choose. I don't know why he put this in here like this, but it bugs me terribly because it's unbiblical. Okay, It's not true the way that this is worded. Such whiteness is rotten to its slavery-justifying, anti-biblical, God-insulting core. Yet as the language of whiteness pops up more and more in Christian conversations about race, its meaning is all too easily muddled. No, it's not muddled. It's exactly what they meant it to uh, portray and, and exactly what they meant to happen. It's not happenstance that they chose the word whiteness. Okay? It is not happenstance. W.E.B. Du Bois is the one who actually, as far as I can tell, I did some research, as far as I can tell, in the 1920s, used that term initially. He didn't popularize it to talk about. The difference between what the way that white people looked at everyone else versus the way that black people look at people okay it's purposeful and that to me this kind of undermines the three points he makes after this but i want to read this um this page 102 and 103 here i want to read this list of statistics I read it four or five times trying to look at it that way. No, not to me. Not to me. No, no, that's fine. That's a legitimate question. But I read it literally four or five times trying to do that because over on the next paragraph to uh, page 105, about three quarters of the way down, he, he calls it, he, he still refuses to call it sinful and wicked. He still just uses the terms offensive. To, to legitimize. Uh, that, that definition of whiteness is, is sin, right? That's what i Yeah. Talking. Yeah. No, okay, I see that. So, so the very use of the term draws our attention away from the biblical definition of sin. This is what I wrote. And to an ethnic definition based on skin color. The meaning of whiteness is not at all too easily muddled. It is accomplishing exactly what they intend to, it to accomplish division, strife, and hatred based on a person's skin color. To say anything else, is attempting to extend an olive branch where none can or should be biblically extended. The term whiteness isn't just unhelpful or offensive, it's purposely divisive. It inherently equates moral evil with white skin, and it is antithetical to the categories that he has established, and he goes on to attempt to establish in this chapter. The author has no problems identifying, unfortunately, and I don't want to get into an argument about the author. It's just I couldn't read these categories any other way. To use that term whiteness in this way extends an olive branch. It's trying to make men's in some way, shape, or form to understand her perspective. The only understanding of her perspective that we can have is that it is inherently wicked. There's no goodness definition or anything else. It is inherently racist. It promotes the, the very things that he's trying to react against. If I read that wrong, you know, I, I'm not sure, but... I don't think I did, because I really tried, like, four or five times. I struggled over these two paragraphs about what to say about them, but that's where I landed on them. <clears throat> so, we see that page 102. I want to read this real quick, and we're going to run out of time today. All right, Western is slavery, then, because this is point um, a point one, which I like these points. Let me go back and say that. I like these points. I like these points. Points one, two, and three are legitimate points and questions to ask. I just wish we landed a little harder in framing it, okay? So does claiming that whiteness is wicked, page 102, drop a glamour filter over non-white cultures? Yes. It makes them immune. It makes anyone who follows this perspective immune from criticism because your power structure is being pushed on to me. Okay, your power structure is being pushed onto me. Question two, page one hundred four: Does claiming that whiteness is wicked cherry pick the most damning aspects of people with less melanin's legacy? That melanin is the pigment in your skin that everyone has that turns your skin darker or lighter. The answer to that question is yes, and he goes on to to, to define it that way. And then p- point three: Is the definition of whiteness as wickedness necessarily inflammatory? Yes, always, okay? He kind of brings this up. For Juan to do that, okay, for her to do that, it does declare that. It's not charitable, he says. But I think that we should, I don't know how else to, def, to, to talk about it. Because think of it this way. Would you just want to call, would you want to take as a, as a white individual, if you were standing up here and I was, I was talking about this, And I said the term blackness promotes, okay? Laziness, okay? The pejoratives that are typically thrown at black people that are absolutely false in a generalization, okay? Laziness, not wanting to work, fatherless homes. Would you call that offensive? Or would you call that sinful and wicked? You'd call it sinful and wicked. And I just, that's my intention in, in bringing out those two paragraphs is to show that. There's this stepping lightly sometimes from even people who I generally agree with, and we can't do that. We have to be willing to stand black and white, not making a pun, black and white as to what is and is not correct in the framing of these things. There is no charity that can be thrown to those who use that term in respect to them promoting what it stands for. That doesn't mean that we can't throw them charity in terms of uh, them being image bearers of God. But their ideas, their ideas are hateful and can be nothing else. They can only destroy. We would not stand for the use of the, that, that sort of language if I stood up here and said those things. And you all would rightly ridicule me over that. Okay? We see a lot of this in evangelicalism. This is why I bring it up. This cow towing. To particular narratives to try to quote-unquote win people with niceness you can be kind and still call something absolutely 100 percent unequivocally no possibility of anything else wrong that does not make you mean that does not make you hateful that does not make you a troublemaker okay especially with this stuff why stand on God's Word Okay, so what does Black Lives Matter say? And this is all we're going to have time for. We're not going to get to the application section today that I meant to get to. We just don't have time. So Black Lives Matter. So what did they say on their website? Why? So what stands in opposition to the idea of whiteness, right? Or stands with, I should, not, not in opposition. What stands with the promotion of whiteness as a analytical tool of whiteness as a social construction that needs to be torn down? Well, Black Lives Matter is an organization... That stands with that definition of that thing. Now, what did they say on their website? Well, how did they promote this? And what, is the, what are the roots of these sorts of things? Notice that those roots, uh, those terms were popularized by white feminist females, okay, who did what? Who none of them respect the Lord at all or his word. None of them promote godly things in that way. Okay, their entire desire is to tear that down. Now, what's the Black Lives Matter, which I, I don't know to be a fact, but I'm assuming that two of those people, Robin D'Angelo would definitely promote Black Lives Matter. I don't know the other two. I'm assuming that they would for the state of argument. Here's what the Black Lives Matter, uh, Black Lives Matter website read up until about September 2020, according to one website, which is when they took it down, supposedly. It says this, Black Lives Matter began as a call to action in response to to state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism, I get behind that. Where there is legitimate state-sanctioned violence, okay, where there is legitimate, by God's standard, anti-black racism, 100%. But it gets worse because that's not the definitions that they mean. What we would think of them it says our intention from the very beginning was to connect black people from all over the world who have a shared. Desire for justice to act together in their communities. The impetus for that commitment uh, was and still is the rampant and deliberate violence inflicted on us by the state. Now, is it rampant and is it deliberate? Here's where we start to descend. We don't know that. We work vigorously for freedom and justice for black people and, by extension, all people, okay? We make space, here's where we start to go away from the biblical narrative. And what it promotes. We make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. These people are delusional. And their feelings. Okay? These, up until recently, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychology okay, defined transgenderism as a delusion. They only changed it since we have started to change the narrative of what sexual identity is in America. Okay, so they're starting to promote this. It says, we are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle, listen, dismantle cisgender privilege. Do you guys know what that is? Cisgender privilege means if you're a, uh, a male who is attracted to female or if you are a male who is a male, and identifies, quote-unquote, as a male, even though you can't identify as anything else. That means that you have privileges associated with that because those are power structures. Remember, Marxist ideology is taking materialist things and applying them to social categories. <clears throat> okay. It says, we build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, and environments which men are centered Men are centered. Okay? We practice empathy. We engage comrades. Comrades with the intent to learn about and connect with their contexts. This is all was on their website. We make our spaces family-friendly. Well, let's define what family-friendly is, okay? And enable parents to dutifully participate with their children. We dismantle... The patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts so that they can mother in private even as they participate in public justice work. Now, that is laughable to the point of being sad. And why? Why do mothers have to work double shifts to provide for their families? Because they have fatherless homes. What do they go on to say in this next one? We disrupt, this is the next quote right after this, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages, quote, that collectively care for one another, especially our children to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. So if you you intend to disrupt the Western nuclear family, what is going to happen except the mom working double shifts to feed her family? Once you leave God's ordained order, you reap what you sow. None of this can sow anything except destruction. That's why I was so vehement about how he framed whiteness, because it is tied to this. We have to go back to what they mean. They don't mean the same things that we mean. By normal words, they, they change them. We foster a queer affirming network, and by that they mean a homosexual, sodomite affirming network. We, when we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip, listen, of heteronormative thinking the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. In other words, we we war against God's created order. Our entire premise in defining whiteness, our entire premise in, in Black Lives Matter is to war against God's created order. You cannot redeem the terms because the people who coined them, the people who coined them have license on them and the reason that they coined them is for a specific purpose there's no redeeming them heteronormative thinking or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless he she they disclose otherwise so do you see this is a question he asked here and then i'll end here because i don't have any more time do you see the problem Social justice B singles out a physical feature that God gave some people and not others. It then uses that feature not as a physical descriptor, but as a mark of evil. And that is wicked. And you don't need to qualify saying that as wicked. It's wrong. It is wrong. It's unbiblical. We would not stand for it, and we shouldn't stand for it. He doesn't stand for it. If you go back and read page 54... This is what confused me so much. I was trying, 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 trying to give him the benefit of the doubt on this particular wording of those two paragraphs. But it says, we find three common marks. One, propaganda offers a highly edited history that paints the most damning picture it can of a given people group. Two, it encourages us to treat individual neighbors as exemplars of their damnable group. Three, It gives us a way to blame all of life's troubles on that damnable group and its members. This has been precisely the logic used to oppress black people throughout history. Amen. Read the propaganda behind the 20th century genocides and you will find the same three marks. And it's the same three marks that are inherent in the term whiteness. We cannot try to give the people who use this term the benefit of the doubt. We must call them to repentance. It'd be like a pastor standing up and or counseling a, mar- a, a couple who's married. And the one person says, "Well, I don't mean what I, what I did with that other woman. The man does. I don't mean what I did with that other woman. There would be an obvious black and white, or should be at least, <laughs> in any Bible-believing church. Um, there would be an obvious black and white stance by that pastor that that man must repent of his sin. It is the same thing with this terminology. Okay, it's no different. It's from it's from Satan. It's not from the Lord at all. All right, we'll uh, we'll we'll hit the application side of it next week. Um, not to start, but I'll I'll just move that to the end of the end of the lesson. Um, I did want to go ahead and tell tell you guys real quick. For those of you who don't know, uh, Kristen and I are going to be leaving the church. Um, at the at some I know most people probably know this or have heard us talk about it. We're it's not a, a, a an Unamicable or an unfriendly leave of any kind uh, I've come to Presbyterian convictions over the last two years and uh, We in order to be faithful to what I feel like is the biblical practice of certain things. I'm uh, baptism and so forth I'm going to uh, move our family to a new church so that after we finish this series at the end of May, the elders have known about this since January, but I, I was trying to think about the right time to go ahead and announce that. And again, it's not unfriendly or unamicable in any way. It's just different convictions that we've come to as a family over the last two years as I've read many, many books and listened to many, many, many lectures. So um, anyway, let me pray for us, and then we will uh, end. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come together. Thank you for uh, just being good and gracious to us. Uh, God, I pray that you would uh, watch over our service today, Lord, Uh, whoever's preaching, Lord. I pray that you would uh, allow them to preach your word accurately and faithfully. And I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to it. In Jesus' name, amen.